You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome, or FPIES. Joining me, I have three guests. I'm going to introduce them individually. First, Dr. Gail Diamond, who's a gastroenterologist in Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thanks so much for joining me, Dr. Diamond. Thanks so much for having me. Great. And our next guest is Amy Dean, who's a clinical dietitian with the Clinical Nutrition Program. Thanks so much for joining us, Amy. Thank you. And last, we have Dr. Terry Brown-Whitehorn, an attending physician with the Division of Allergy and Immunology. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Brown-Whitehorn. Thanks for having us. So the fact that we have three guests today gives you a clue to how complex the pathophysiology and management of FPIES is, and more importantly, the team-based approach of the CHOP FPIES clinic. So let's get started. FPIES is a delayed food allergy that typically presents with vomiting and diarrhea. Dr. Brown-Whitehorn, can you explain immunologically how FPIES is different from other food allergies? Sure, that's a great question. Patients with food protein-induced enterocolitis present after they eat a food and then two hours later they throw up a lot and often have diarrhea. It's not immediate. In patients with this kind of condition, unlike with IgE-mediated food allergies, skin testing is not helpful because it's a different mechanism. It's not immediate. The pathophysiology is much more complicated than that. We're still learning about it, and it's thought to be more driven by T cells instead of an IgE-mediated process. That's very helpful. So instead of IgE, we're talking about T cells here, but it's still so complex that we're learning a lot more. Now, another thing is that any food can trigger FPIES, just like it can other food allergies. But are there certain foods that are common culprits? So early in infancy, cow's milk and soy are the most common causes of FPIES, usually through formula. Later on in infancy, when foods are introduced, Cow's milk and soy are still among the most common, as well as certain grains, such as oat and rice. And other foods are less common, but among those are poultry, seafood, and certain fruits and vegetables. That's a pretty big variety of foods that you're talking about there, but it's helpful to know that there's some that appear more commonly than others. Katie, you know what's really interesting, though, is that it depends on what country you're in as to what's the most common foods. Because in Australia, they see other things that are much more common. I mean, I guess rice and rice is a common one. But in some of the other countries, fish is much more common than it is in the U.S. So it also depends on what we're feeding our children. Mm -hmm. And so with that, are there any specific guidelines about when you introduce certain foods or avoid certain foods that could potentially modify your risk of FPIES? No, it's there. we don't advise, especially for parents who have babies after a child with FPIES, to modify the food introduction 
patterns is there is a reaction. There is high cross-reactivity or co-reactivity between rice and oat. So if a child has a reaction to rice or oat, then we would delay introduction of the other grain as well as milk and soy. But it is important to introduce a variety of foods starting at around six months to make sure that the child has adequate nutrition and to prevent feeding aversions, which can result in nutrient deficiencies as well as poor growth. Okay, that's very helpful. So nothing that we should avoid from the get-go, have a varied diet, but if we're seeing signs of FPIs, then we may want to modify the diet with your help after that point. Yes. One thing that I would like to point out is that if a food is already tolerated when a child has a reaction, that food should not be stopped. So if a baby already has cow's milk and tolerates it when they react to oat, they should continue the cow's milk and not take it out. That's a helpful point. Thank you. So we talked about vomiting and diarrhea being the prominent symptoms. Can you help paint a picture of what a child with FPIs might look like and how they might present in the primary care setting? So in acute FPIs, the child vomits typically one or more likely two hours after eating a certain food. But with the first reaction, it's hard to know that a particular food is causing the FPIs reaction. So often it looks like terrible acute gastroenteritis, an infectious gastroenteritis. That is until we get the history that a specific food seemed to have triggered this acute vomiting reaction more than once. And so it's often not understood by the family or the PCP or the allergist or the gastroenterologist that this is FPIs until a second FPIs reaction. So getting a history of the foods eaten prior to the terrible vomiting events is very important. It can become a little more tricky in the kids with chronic FPIs that have chronic diarrhea. But again, I think the most important thing is getting a really good dietary history and trying to get a sense of that timing. Does there seem to be a temporal association with food eaten followed by symptoms occurring? Great. So this looks like a place where the details are really important in the history. And as Dr. Brown-Whitehorn mentioned, we want to tease this apart from IgE-mediated food allergies. So in this case, we're not seeing other systemic symptoms, right? We're just seeing the vomiting and diarrhea. That is pretty much true, I think, for the acute FPIs. But with chronic FPIs, it's more often in little babies where they're constantly getting a formula, most likely, and they start to have reflux symptoms and vomiting and diarrhea, and they start to fall off the growth curve. It's a really hard diagnosis to make, but we have had some babies get really quite ill and we don't have a diagnostic test for it. And what often will happen is that the baby comes off the formula just because they're not tolerating it. 
and ultimately is transitioned to either an elemental formula or an amino acid formula, and the babies do well. And then if they have an accidental exposure or they're given that formula again, then by definition, they should have more of an acute reaction, meaning two hours later, there's vomiting, whereas before it wasn't quite as clear. It's a bit complicated, the chronic ones, not as common as the acute, but we do see that. And general pediatricians definitely see it as well. So given that FPIs affects the GI system predominantly with its symptoms, are we expecting many of these children to have poor growth? And should we include FPIs in our differential for children who aren't growing well? I think that's a great question. And I would certainly consider it in the baby that has diarrhea and poor growth. We do see some kids that have fallen off of the growth curve in diarrhea of predominant chronic FPIs. We also see kids that fall off the growth curve because families get frustrated and rightly confused about what food is best for their child. And so sometimes calorie intake can decline. But again, I think chronic FPIs should be on the differential diagnosis for a baby that has chronic unexplained diarrhea and poor growth. So if I'm concerned that a patient may have FPIs, is there any diagnostic workup that I should be doing in primary care? I think a lot of the workup focuses around ruling out other etiologies for the patient's symptom. As Dr. Brown mentioned, there is not any specific diagnostic test that says this is definitely FPIs. So a lot of what we order are workups for vomiting, workups for diarrhea, workups for malnutrition in order to cross those other things off of the differential diagnosis. I also think that in acute FPIs, in an emergency room situation, so we didn't discuss this, but about 20% of babies who have an acute FPIs reaction will present in shock to our emergency room or perhaps to your clinics. And if a CBC with differential is obtained at that point, you will see most often an elevated white blood cell count with a left shift. And it looks like the baby is quite sick, you know, and, and is septic. But unlike with sepsis, if you repeat a CBC in like 24 hours, the CBC normalizes, maybe not 100%, but it gets a lot better. It seems like faster than in sepsis. I think just knowing about the condition is really important. And like Dr. Diamond said, we don't really have a great workup except excluding other things. The other thing to know is that once children have FPIs, a lot of families may think that every single episode of vomiting or diarrhea is from FPIs, and that also is not true. So working with our colleagues in primary care is so important because these kids can get normal baby things or normal toddler things as well. Thanks for all of that clarification. You are all demonstrating how you work together as a team in the FPIs clinic and how, again, complex it can be to make this diagnosis. So can you explain a little bit about how the FPIs clinic works and the importance of why you're using a team-based approach? 
Years ago, we started a joint clinic for the condition known as eosinophilic esophagitis, utilizing nutrition, GI, and allergies, seeing patients all at the same time. That I saw with my own eyes worked quite well as a clinician, as well as for our families. Because food protein-induced enterocolitis involves the GI tract and we're concerned about allergies and nutrition, it made perfect sense to me that we should be treating these patients with food protein-induced enterocolitis in the exact same way. So this joint clinic was started after that. We also had a lot of families who were frustrated because they would see a GI clinician who would say one thing and then an allergist who may say another. And I think in real time, these families can discuss with us their concerns and in the same room, we come to a conclusion or recommendation that will work for the child and we're all on the same page. Now, we may have to change our plan over time depending on how the child does, but I think that it's so important to have this. The nutrition piece is key as well. There are some children who have very limited diets early on and are able to expand, and Amy can go into that a little bit more over time. But what we want to make sure is that the nutrition that the child has at the time allows them to grow and be healthy and have a love of food as well. Yes, it's very helpful to work as the dietitian along with the allergy doctor and the gastroenterologist to be able to get their diagnosis and guidelines and input regarding the next foods and which foods are safe to try so that we can move forward with systematic introduction of foods. And that's the way that we do add foods to the child's diet one by one so that if they do have another reaction, we know exactly what caused it and we can remove the one food and proceed with adding more foods. And having the gastroenterologist in the room has been very helpful to manage a lot of other common symptoms of reflux and constipation and other things that happen to babies and can affect their food intake and can worry parents that they're having a reaction so that we can continue to add foods. I think it's been really helpful for families to have all of us in the room together, like Dr. Brown and Amy have mentioned, because we all are saying the same thing at the same time. And you can see that it's almost a relief for families to have us all there during one appointment. And we can work together in the moment to think about tests that we may need to order to rule out things that may be on the differential diagnosis or tests that we need to order to evaluate their nutritional status. And I think the families really appreciate this team approach. Thank you for explaining your team-based approach. And it sounds like it's such a great service for the families and patients. Now, we've talked a lot about diagnosis, and you touched a little bit there on management. So how are kids with FPIs managed? Is it as simple as avoiding the triggering food and then reintroducing it later? And sort of what is the pathway and timing of doing that? 
So first and foremost, if we know what the trigger is, we definitely have the patient avoid that particular food. And depending on how many foods the child already has in their diet will depend on how many foods the child needs to trial going forward. We usually recommend when we have children trial foods that they start with a small amount of food and gradually increase it over five to seven days. And early on, we want that food to be in the diet of the child on a daily or every other day basis. On rare occasions, we've had where a child has seemed to tolerate a food and then for whatever reason, they're not given the food for a month, they get the food and then they have trouble with it. And so we're careful with explaining what we want families to do. Now, when somebody has multiple foods in their diet and they're doing great with multiple foods in their diet, then they don't have to have it in their diet every day. Again, children with FIs are managed just like everyone else. We want to make sure that they're growing well and thriving and that they enjoy eating as well. The other thing I just wanted to mention before we're finished is that for the parents or the caregivers, if you've ever seen your child have an FPIs type reaction, it is awful because you don't know what's happening to your baby. And so some of these parents are very nervous, rightly so, about adding a food in. And so although we don't have a psychologist who we or a social worker who works directly with us, there are some families where we want to make sure that the parents or caregivers get the help that they also need. So we want to clearly treat the child, but sometimes we need to help also help the families. To answer your question, though, it's avoiding the trigger foods and how do you read labels and make sure, and then adding more foods in. So how do we know when we can trial reintroducing a triggering food? Is there a certain time period that you wait for them to potentially outgrow FPIs? So unfortunately, we do not know when children will outgrow their food allergy or their food trigger. And we usually find out in a variety of ways. One, the child is accidentally gets the food and is okay, or they have a reaction. The other is that the families are unsure and they tend to just give the food. That doesn't happen that often, but then you find out yes or no. And then the third way is we do it in the hospital during what's called a food challenge where we actually give the food and monitor the children for four hours. We typically will wait 18 months after the last exposure and reaction, but that can vary depending on the family and the child and the needs of the food. And I would add that if a family is trying a food at home, we try to do our best to prepare the family about potential symptoms that the child may experience that are unlikely to be related to FPIs because a lot of symptoms can occur just from having a new food introduction that they haven't seen before, like a change in stool pattern, or maybe it makes their stomachs a little upset and this may interrupt their sleep. So we try to prepare the families really well with what signs should they definitely be concerned about and give us a call versus what signs are expected. And of course, they can contact us at any time with any concerns that they have. 
The other thing to know is that we have this joint Epice clinic with allergy GI nutrition, and there's another group that also does this, Dr. Kazatsky from allergy, Dr. Godwin from GI, and Amy from nutrition. But we also see some patients with food protein-induced enterocolitis outside of these joint clinics. And so sometimes it depends on the severity of the initial reactions or the concerns of the families or the concerns of primary care. But we are here for people if they definitely need us or if they need us. So you all have talked a lot about how we're still learning a lot about FPIs. I'm wondering what research is being done in this area. So thanks to some generous donors and interested families, Dr. Melanie Ruffner and her team has been able to start doing research here at CHOP. And there's two big problems in the area of food protein-induced enterocolitis. Number one, we don't have a skin test or blood test that tells us that this particular food for your child is going to cause a problem. So we need some kind of biomarker that says this is the food. Now, our goal is for Melanie to work or Dr. Ruffner to work on that. But the other problem is that we also don't have what's called a biomarker or some kind of marker that's easy to obtain, whether it's blood or urine stool, that says this is definitely an FPIES reaction. And so one of the studies that she is very involved in is looking at children who are coming for food challenges for food protein-induced enterocolitis and obtain a specimen of blood right before they do a challenge and after they do a challenge, and then checking to see what is different about the two specimens outside of the CBC, which we had discussed before. Is there a biomarker that will say, this vomiting is definitely from an FPIES reaction versus this vomiting is perhaps from a gastroenteritis or something else. So right now, she's working on trying to figure out a biomarker or just seeing what's different. And we're working with another institution who is also sending us samples so we can analyze some of the same things. So that we're very excited about. But if we could get that biomarker for food, I would do a happy dance. And so would, not that I have one, but so would Dr. Diamond and Amy, they would also ha be happy. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like that would be so helpful to have. And we are still learning so much. And we appreciate the work that you all are doing, as well as Dr. Ruffner and the others that you mentioned within your department. So Thank you for teaching us more about FPIES today and helping primary care pediatricians and providers figure out a little bit about how to manage these patients in primary care and when they may need referrals. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for thank having you so us. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. <laughs>